This morning, the title of my sermon is Moses Identified with the Hebrews. Moses Identified with the Hebrews and we're looking at Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 through to verse 25, the end of the chapter. I'm going to give you the very briefest of recaps. It's helpful if you know what happened before. Moses, he... When he was, he was born at a time when Egypt was putting to death all the male Hebrew children. They were being thrown into the river to a watery death, a watery grave. And Moses' mum hid him. Where did she hide him? She hid him in a basket in the same river that other babies were being put to death in. And he was hidden in that river for a time. And it was uh, it was suggested that God's hand was in on this. And I, I say suggested, it seems obvious to me from the very beginning that uh, Moses was under God's providential care. And the next thing we know, Moses, his big sister, Miriam, she's watching from a safe distance, keeping an eye on the, the little baby boy in the basket on the river. And who should come along but none other than the princess of Egypt. Pharaoh's daughter, and she had compassion on the little baby, even though she saw it was a Hebrew, and uh, he was a beautiful child, we're told. God tells us he was a beautiful boy, so he must have been, and she took compassion on him, and she wanted to look after him, and that's when Miriam, the sister, she comes in on the scene, and she makes a suggestion to the princess. She says, shall I get one of the Hebrew midwives to, to look after, uh, midwife, uh, nurse rather, to look after Moses. And the princess agreed to that idea. So off went Moses' big sister. And who did he bring back? None other than Moses' mother to look after him. And the princess of Egypt, she gave uh, child benefit. She gave payment to Moses' mother for looking after her own child. And I think that's as far as we get with it. Forty years have now gone on. Um, be, the child did end up back with um, with the princess. And forty years went by. And let's see what happens now. First of all, in our, in our verses for today, Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 to 25, we see the bravery of Moses. As I say, he was 40 years old by this time. 40 years have gone by. Some of the verses before us may appear to be loaded with inference. In other words, you might very easily interpret certain verses in a certain way, but whether you've interpreted, interpreted them correctly or not is another matter. Your interpretation may not be entirely accurate. Let's have a look at the word of God now. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And let's see what we make of these two verses. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren, and he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. 
you might be inclined to, to think, if not say, that um, instead of looking this way and that way, Moses should have been looking heavenwards. He should have been looking to God. And you might also accuse Moses of being a violent murderer. And this is something that has been levelled at Moses by various Bible commentators, that he acted rashly and uh, he was a murderer. But rather than read verses 11 and 12, in isolation to everything else, we do far better to read it alongside other verses of scripture. There are other verses of scripture. Um, I'm going to turn to Acts chapter 7, verse 23 and 24 in the New Testament. You can turn to that or else you can just listen very carefully when I read from those verses. Acts chapter 7, verse 23. And when he, that's Moses, was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. That sheds a bit more light on what actually happened. I'll leave it to you to make up your own mind, but as far as I can make out, when Moses killed that Egyptian, he bravely acted uh, in defence of a Hebrew slave who was being brutally mistreated. As for looking this way and that way instead of looking heavenwards, Moses would have been aware of the great risk that he was taking in defending a Hebrew slave. And so he did what he did, looking this way and that way, as a precaution for his own self-preservation. It kind of makes sense to me, that does. We can see more of the bravery of Moses in verses 16 16 through to 19. Have a look at verses 16 to 19 here. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to rule their father he said how is it that ye are come so soon today? And they said An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and also drew water enough for us and watered the flock. We're not told how many shepherds there were, but whatever the number was, Moses stood up, presumably he'd been sitting down, perhaps even waiting patiently for his turn in the queue uh, to, to draw water from the trough. I don't know. But we know he stood up. And he stood up to those shepherds and he rescued the seven daughters of the priest of Midian from those shepherds. And like a gentleman, he drew water for them. To me, Moses sounds like he was a knight in shining armour and a brave one at that. Who would not stand up to do nothing when there was an injustice? Moses didn't just stand there and do nothing when he saw... Uh, an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave, he intervened. And he didn't just sit there and do nothing 
when the shepherds shoved the um, seven daughters of the priest of Midian out the way. He defended those ladies. And that would very soon be a desirable quality for when he would later judge Israel. Out of interest, how brave are you? How brave am I? I don't necessarily mean in standing up to the bully boys, although that is a desirable and an admirable quality. It is a brave thing to do. You, you, time and again, you, I read it, I see it in the newspapers, um, about people standing by when someone else is being attacked and treated, being treated in a bad way, maybe being beaten or stabbed or something. And some people even stand there and, and get their phones out and, and film it. But I suspect that most people, they don't intervene because they're scared. It's not that they don't care, they're scared. And who wouldn't be? If you're out and about in the street and you see someone beating someone else, and they may even have a weapon on them, a knife, you're going to be scared. Because if you intervene, you might end up getting beaten. You might end up getting stabbed. And so it's not really about not caring. Most people do care. Most people don't like to see these. But we're scared. We're scared to get involved. And it's so much easier and safer to turn the other way. Moses, he got stuck in there, didn't he? And he did something about it. But when I ask you how brave are you, I'm not necessarily talking about in that context, but rather how prepared are you to stand up for what is right, for truth, and ultimately for the truth which is the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. That kind of bravery, knowing full well that you will be reviled and you will be persecuted and you may even be beaten or, and put to death because the gospel is a message that the world hates. Obviously, I'm speaking to the Christians in here. How brave are you when it comes to proclaiming Christ and his gospel to a world which hates Jesus. Let's face it, it takes a holy boldness to tell people that they are sinners in need of the Saviour and a lot of churches have chickened out of doing just that. That timidity was even around in the early church. We see a lot of bravery in the early church. When you read Acts of the Apostles, there is a lot of uh, holy boldness in the early church, but that wasn't the case all the time. It couldn't have been, because listen to what the Apostle Paul said to a, a, a young Christian minister, Timothy, at a time when Paul was himself a prisoner in Rome for Christ's sake. He said, and this is by way of encouragement to Timothy and to anyone else, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel. 
according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So Paul encourages us to share with him in the sufferings for the gospel. Secondly, I'd like to consider with you that Moses was chosen by God. Let's have a look at verse 11 in Exodus chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting an Hebrew, one of his brethren. This is where we see Moses, who by adoption was a prince of Egypt, beginning to turn his back on the treasures of Egypt as he began to identify with God's people of old, the Israelites, and ultimately to identify with God. Again, when we look at verse 11, alongside Acts chapter 7, verse 23 in the New Testament, we get some more information. We need to look at verse 11 alongside Acts chapter 7 again. It can be seen in Acts chapter 7 verse 23 that God had already spoken to Moses for it is written in that verse, now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, It came into his heart. What does it say in our verse here, in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 2? And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren. It doesn't say anything about it coming into his heart to visit them. We get that information from Acts chapter 7. What do you suppose that means? Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren. In the Bible, there were times when thoughts came into people's hearts and it was God who put those thoughts into their hearts in the first place. For example, Nehemiah, who was the governor of Judea, about 445 BC, during the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, said in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 12, Then I arose in the night... I and a few men with me, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Coming back to Moses, when you study his life, how God was clearly caring for him from birth and raising him up to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, it is very reasonable, I would say, that it came into his heart to visit his brethren because God put it into his heart at the right time it just it wasn't just on any old time at that particular time in Moses life God put it in his heart to to visit the Hebrews and to identify with them and to eventually deliver them from their affliction their afflictions in Egypt however the Israelites didn't know that to be the case at the time they didn't know that God had put it in his heart That's clear from the hostile response that Moses received the day after he killed the Egyptian and he saw two Hebrews fighting. 
and he bravely, bra- again, bravely, he intervened. Look at verses 13 and 14. This is a day after killing the Egyptian. Verses 13 and 14. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together, and he said to them that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. In verse 14, we see Moses facing opposition from those Hebrews, those Israelites, such like, such um, of, of whom he would deliver from slavery in Egypt that it would actually be 40 years later when he was 80 years old. But these are the kind of people that he would deliver from their afflictions. But at that time, they, all they could say was, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? They didn't have a clue at that time who Moses was and that he was one of them and that one day he would lead them out of Egypt. And he would lead them out of Egypt into the wilderness through an opening made by God in the Red Sea. That beginning of opposition to Moses with much more to come from the Israelites is a picture of things to come when God would send his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world 1,500 years later to rescue people from slavery to sin. For example, in John chapter 1 and verse 1, it is written that he, Jesus, came unto his own, the Jews, and his own received him not. Very similar, isn't it? The Hebrews didn't receive Moses, and when it comes to Jesus, his own received him not. And it's not just the Jews who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the whole world. As it is written in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 53 and verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. It's not just the Hebrews, not just the Jews, it's the whole world. As Jesus himself said in John chapter 15 and verse 18, if the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. That's astonishing when you think that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and give them everlasting life. The trouble is that sinners love their sin. Thirdly, Moses had a choice, enjoyment or suffering. We've considered how it came into Moses' heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and that God not only spoke into Moses' heart, and God not only spoke into the heart of Nehemiah, the governor of Judea, but he does speak into hearts and minds. God does. Nevertheless, Moses, when we look at Moses, he did have a choice. He need never have visited the Hebrews in their affliction. He could have chosen to remain in the lap of royal luxury and do nothing. Again, 
turning to the New Testament, and this time Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through to 26. This is what is written. By faith Moses, when he came of age, we know that to be 40 years of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming or considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. This came at a time when it came into his heart to visit the Hebrews. He chose to do so. He was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. That would have given him the very best that this world had to offer. The high life, fabulous wealth, whatever he wanted at the click of his fingers. Yet for all that he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. This is something that's always fascinated me about those verses. It does not say reproaches for Christ in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 26. It says the reproach of Christ. There's a difference there, isn't there? Suffering the reproaches, suffering reproaches for Christ and suffering the reproach of Christ. Actually suffering the the reproach of Christ. And what was that reproach? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 13 has the answer. In that verse, it is written, Let us go forth, therefore, unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. That's it. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Of that verse, one of the commentators has said, The reproach of Christ is all the shame that was heaped on him, which culminated in his dying outside of the camp as a crucified criminal. And whoever comes into contact with Christ by true faith must bear his part of that reproach. Also, let us not forget that even though Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he nevertheless would have loved her dearly as his adoptive mum for 40 years. And no doubt she would have loved him dearly, that beautiful son of hers. Even so, he turned his back on her in, in order to answer the call of Almighty God. Let's look at some application. As God put it in the heart of Moses to do his will, so too does God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells all Christians, work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. You're not left to your own devices. None of you are who belong to Jesus. Also God has said, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbour and none his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. 
for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. God writes his laws in our minds and in our hearts when we belong to him. Those laws of love. Needless to say that if God really is speaking to you and laying it on your heart to do his good pleasure, it will be in agreement with the Bible. After all, God does not contradict himself. How often do you hear it? Well, you know, someone justifying some something that they've done, which is so unscriptural. God spoke to me. He told me to do this. And I'm just standing there thinking, well, it's strange I've never seen that one in the Bible. Go and marry someone who's a, a, not a Christian. A Christian saying this. I'm a Christian, but God told me. God gave me permission to go marry that person. What I do read in the Bible, that there is no fellowship between Christ and Belial. There's no fellowship between darkness and light. I read these things. We need to be very careful that when God is speaking to us, which he does, he really does. He leads us and he, he to do his good pleasure. But we need to be sure that it, what, when, we, when God is speaking to us, it does not contradict his word. God doesn't contradict himself. For example, do you feel a burning desire in your heart to speak to your unsaved next door neighbour or your child or your mum or your dad about the Lord Jesus Christ? Then go for it. After all, Jesus has said, In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Last of all, and I'll leave you with this thought and also a question to answer. When you consider that Moses considered or esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, that does not mean that living in the lap of luxury and being rich is sinful. There's nothing sinful about that. After all, a hundred years or so before Moses, Joseph, he would have enjoyed great wealth. And great privileges as the second most important person in Egypt under Pharaoh. Yet he remained a faithful servant of God. The question is, regardless of what earthly treasures you have accumulated, do you consider, do you esteem the reproach of Christ greater than those riches? Moses did. Do you consider the the reproach Approach of Christ greater than your riches because that really is something. To genuinely and honestly place a higher value on suffering the reproach of Christ than on all that you have and indeed all the treasures of the world. Let's take this literally. If someone said to you, what would you rather have? All the riches in the world or suffering the reproach of Christ? What would your answer be? 
As you ponder that one, think upon Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This is God, the Son of God here, who who owns everything. He's the creator. This universe and beyond, it's all his. Everything that is. Jesus made it all. The cattle on a thousand hills, you name it. It all belongs to Jesus. Even so, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And even saying, the foxes have their holes, the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death even the death on the cross, when he laid down his life for people like you and like me. By God's grace, can you say, that is the most precious thing of all, Christ laying down his life for me. He is my greatest treasure, the one who loved me and who gave himself for me. Amen.